Welcome to All Write in Sin City, a podcast about writers and writing in the Windsor, Detroit region. Your podcasters today are Irene Moore Davis, author, educator, and local historian, Sarah Jarvis, former bookseller, publishing rep, and literary festival chair, and me, Kim Conklin, Windsor based writer and filmmaker. This recording takes place online with safe physical distancing. Our featured guest today is Allison Swan. Allison Swan's first full-length collection of poems, A Fine Canopy, will be released in October by Wayne State University Press. Her poems and essays have appeared in many publications, including her poetry chapbooks, Before the Snow Moon and Dog Heart, the recent award-winning anthologies, Elemental, a collective of Michigan creative nonfiction, ghost fishing, and echo justice poetry anthology, and here, women writing on the Upper Peninsula. Her work has been featured in the journals The North American Review and Tri-Quarterly, and the Michigan Post broadside series and anthology. In 2006, her book Fresh Water, Women Writing on the Great Lakes, was named a Michigan notable book. She's been awarded a Mesa Refuge Residency and the Michigan Environmental Council's Petoskey Prize for Grassroots Environmental Leadership. She teaches in the, the Institute of the Environment and Sustainability at Western Michigan University and lives in Ann Arbor. Welcome, Allison. Thank you. I'm, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for your interest in my book, but also just for your interest in literary art in general, right? It's Thank you. Thank you very much. So, so this is your first full-length collection of poetry, but you've been publishing since at least 1997. One of your early poems is in the New York Library Rare Book Collection. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey as a poet? Uh, I can. I can try. I can try. Um, I, mean, I mean, I'm what I'm remarking on is a little bit. Um, so I, I, I really and truly have been in love with words since I could read. And I started writing poems. I started writing things that I was writing just for myself or just because I was in love with the language or just because I had a story to tell or an image to record when I was a child. So um, it's been the centerpiece of my life, really. Um, I published my first poems as an undergrad. Actually, as a, as a high school student, I published my first poems. Um, I... I went all the way, my whole formal education, creative writing and literature was my focus. So I, I'll, I, I could probably talk for half an hour in answer to that question. So I'll pause there and maybe you could, if there's something specific you would like to know about it, I'd be happy to talk more. It sounds like your work and your, um, your day job and your poetry interconnect. You write that every poem you've ever written is inspired by the four grand peninsulas. Michigan's Upper and Lower, uh, Florida, and the Pacific Northwest Olympic. What is it about the shape of peninsulas um, or the environment of peninsulas that inspire you? So I think I think the word I used was influenced. Um, I'm, I did I say inspired? Um, I or shaped or or I don't I don't use the word inspired a whole lot, but I do use it once in a while. Um, but I love that question because, yes, peninsulas, they strike me as um, powerful places, literally powerful, because they are land um, that has usually been around for millennia. 
um, if not always, you know, forever is a long word, but, and, and they are enclosed by water, large bodies of water. The peninsulas that I happen to be so connected to are surrounded by large bodies of water. So that's just powerful, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of an intersection of land and water. And one of the things that really interests me about land and water and the intersection of land and water is that human beings as a species can only live on land realistically. I mean, we could, with a lot of technological intervention, we can go underwater and stay there a while. Um, and with a lot of technological intervention, we can go on the surface of the water and stay there for a while. But um, we were terrestrial creatures. And, and yet a peninsula is a place where, or and the peninsula is a place where we can be kind of fully occupy our terrestrial selves, but also flirt with, oh, that, that water that we can't live in. It's just so big and so powerful and it's just right there. That's a fun question. Thanks. <laughs> Much of your work captures the landscape and the Great Lakes, and one of your poems actually talks about remaking the world for cars. How does your teaching and your environmental work connect with your poetry? Oh, you guys ask really good questions. Um, I, by now, they're inextricable because I, I think I mentioned that I published my first poems as, an, as a high school student I stood in front of my first classroom of students that were looking at me to tell them something that might be useful to them um, just a few years later, actually a couple years later. And, and so, um, and then the activism started um, maybe, let me just kind of put a time on this here, a decade later, two decades later, maybe. So th they're inextricable now. In, in my experience of, my, of the world, in my experience of my life, they are absolutely intertwined and they all inform each other. And when I stand in front of a classroom of students, I'm very much aware of the ways in which my writing life has sensitized me to words. Um, you know, I am the classic constantly revising as I speak, which my students sometimes laugh at me for. Um, and then the activism, the activism, which I've, I kind of describe myself as a semi-retired activist now because it's all consuming. To be really effective as a grassroots environmental activist, you, it has to be the centerpiece of your life. And I have never been willing to put my family behind anything. So um, when, when I was raising my daughter, she, was a, she of course came first. For a big chunk of her childhood, the activism was second. And the writing got done in and around this, you know, the spaces that were left. But having said that, I know for sure that my writing um, has been impacted in really positive ways by the things I learned from being an activist. So you also talk about the natural world as an inspiration for faith. People who say they don't have any probably don't go outside enough, I think was one of the lines in your poems. Uh, in science, I think it was. How do you think spending more time outside helps us? Does it make us better human beings? If we have the ability, if, if one, if one has the ability to be out of doors, under the sky, in a place that is safe from harm, you know, from being harmed in some way or poisoned in some way, or um, which some people don't, some people don't have that, that, that ability. Um, but if one has the ability to be outside under the sky and be one, you know, as safe as you need to be as a human being, then yes, I do think it's 
one of the most nourishing, grounding, um, settling, um, um, priority, um, establishing things that a person can do. And I actually really do believe that. I've had people push back. I know that there are people who consider themselves to be city people. I once heard someone say in an interview, too much green and I'd freak. Um, um, but I actually see that itself as a sign of the disconnect that is um, so dangerous. That, 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 that someone would say that unselfconsciously strikes me as not true. They, 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 that's just because they haven't been outside enough is, uh, is, what, is the way that I hear a statement like that. Uh, I, let me, could, do you mind if I reflect a little bit on that word faith? Um, Not at all. I, 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 was taken, I was taken by surprise, quite honestly, and this is the wonderful thing about publishing a book, by, I have been pleasantly surprised by the fact that that word keeps resurfacing when people ask me questions about my book or write about it. And it's funny because I do not consider myself to be a religious person, um, and I wouldn't probably not have, um, except for having put it into a poem, I probably would not have even used that word to describe um, something that's central to my day-to-day -day life. But, um, but it actually is central to my day-to-day -day life in this way. It's central in the sense that I do, um, on a very fundamental level, um, have the feeling that the universe is unfolding in the way that it you know, even if you say is meant, was meant, that by whom, you know, I, but I do have kind of a core belief that things will work out. The problem is, and this is a very real problem, it sometimes can take a very long time for things to work out. And many people in the meantime, suffer. Another poem, uh, one by one, seems to speak of a hope for a post-suburban life. Um, do you think that's a possibility? Can we discover a new way to live with nature, hopefully with the least amount of suffering in between? Okay, so here, here's where I have to tell you, all of you and everybody who's listening, that I don't have answers. I have more questions than answers. And... Um, I'm really grateful for scientists of all kinds who are looking for answers. Um, but I myself don't feel like I have answers to those really hard questions like the one you just asked. <laughs> oh, I don't, I'm really happy to think about the question. And I do think about it. I didn't just start just this second thinking about it. But that is interesting what you, you say um, about science that you you are looking to science when so many people are rejecting it um and you're bringing it into your it seems like you're bringing it into your poetry yes exactly i i am grateful beyond expression for science and scientists and the people who do the hard work of um, gathering the data that we need to make really hard choices um but i myself am very much a generalist and I'm kind of, um, I'm very, I'm very easily distracted. I like to think of it more of, I like my attention is frequently drawn by things and held and for better or worse in my life as a writer, especially that's what I have cultivated. 
And it, you know, when you're my, I, some of my colleagues in the Institute at Western are, are scientists. And I, when I listen to them talk about their work, my primary emotion is to feel claustrophobic. You know, like I, I, I couldn't even imagine being in a wetland and um, focusing on um, collecting water samples in a very careful way because within five minutes I would be, oh, there's a red-winged blackbird. And then I would be, oh, and look, the wait, there's rustling in that tree over there. I wonder what caused that. But absolutely, certainly scientists, yeah, that anybody would reject science in the 21st century. I mean, reject it outright. That boggles in the mind. I mean, that just boggles in the mind. Sometimes you respond poetically to something that you've read. What kind of emotion or situation sparks that response for you? I would say that um, it's, I've never thought about that question. And I'm, so I'm thinking about it on my feet right here. Um, I have never thought about what kind of passage of writing sparks a response, except that I, it's almost always writing that engages with the, the, the material, the, the, the planet, the physical planet, but it doesn't have to be literary art. It doesn't have to be, you know, what we used to call literature unselfconsciously. It could be science. It, it could be um, even social science, even journalism. Um, but it's usually something that for whatever reason connects me more intensely than I already am with the earth. I don't, and I, you know what, this would be a good moment to say, I don't really, I don't really leave earth much in my imagination. In other words, I don't go to the moon. I don't go to Mars. I don't even really go up into the stars with any kind of, um, any kind of an engagement other than being on earth and considering them. And sometimes I wonder if I might, maybe it might not be good for me to go, you know, go back, study the solar system again. Um, I'm intrigued by the fact that earth is in a universe, right? But I'm very earth centric, I have to say, in my imagination. You do, however, go into history in your imagination. Um, in the archives poems you borrow from women's diaries from the 19th century and such, can you tell us the story of how you came to create those poems? I would love to. Um, I, I, that was a project that I gave myself when I was a graduate student at the University of Michigan. And um, you and your listeners might not know, but the University of Michigan has um, um, archives of original materials right on campus, many, many, the Bentley Historical Library, and it's full of letters and diaries from Michigan, the history of Michigan. And I knew I wanted to, um, at that point, so that was the early, 1989 to 1991, I was quite obsessed with the way that women's voices had been squelched. Um, and we know so much more about that now than we did then, but that was something that I was very much aware of all the time. And I thought it would be really cool to just, and this is pre-internet, right? So I could, and I lived in Ann Arbor, and so I could literally go and sit with the boxes and read the words and just immerse myself. And we, that experience is not so easy to come by anymore or people don't avail themselves of it because it's too labor intensive or too resource intensive, right? Um, but I could actually just walk from my house to the library, sit in the library with the letters, the actual letters in the actual diaries. 
And then, um, so I, that's what I did. And I just sat and read and tried to lose myself in the voices. And um, these poems emerged from that kind of intense reading, I would call it, super, super focused and engaged reading. And one of the journals that I found was in a, a, one of those, those old fashioned banker's boxes in a manila folder with her father's name on the tab. And I just, you know, I was so, I felt that as a personal slight, you know, I didn't ever want my diary to be in a file folder with my father's name on the tab. However, a very um, insightful person pointed out to me that, well, at least what, well, at least it was saved. Um, right. At least it was saved and it was in that box for me to encounter and read. What about all the diaries that were destroyed? Um, for one reason or another but that was where those those are i i mean if they're fictionalized but i didn't i really did not take very many liberties with the voices of the women and um some of the some of the the some of the way they word things the words they choose the phrasing that's that doesn't sound like me it's their it's their voices it's the way they said it um and it was fun it was fun to hear the sassiness coming off the page in those diaries. It was fun. Were you surprised that they were kind of sassy given when it was written? You know, I can't remember. I, I can't remember if I was surprised in the moment. Um, I don't think so because I was, as a little girl, I was a diary keeper and all my sass went into my diary. Um, yeah, so I, but I don't honestly remember in the moment if it, if it surprised me. It, what did surprise me? I guess I was surprised by uh, the care they took to record um, their surroundings and the details of their sur the weather, um, especially um, sometimes to the point of like I would I would get a ways into a diary and be like, real seriously, could you write about something else except what the weather is like? And and sometimes I would wonder, I wonder if she would like her mother or father made her like here you must write in a diary every day. So she's like, I don't know what to write. I'll just write about the weather. There were some diaries like that. In poems like Self Serve and Detroit, you evoke images of the 20th century in decay, but your feeling or point of view feels more complex than mere nostalgia. Can you talk a little bit about how you see changes happening in our region? So one of the thoughts I've had since a fine canopy landed on my step, I mean the, the book, the actual book that I can hold in my hands, is that I couldn't write this book now. I, I, I could not write this book now. I am brokenhearted. Um, and I think most of the poems in A Fine Canopy were, were written out of, out of a place where I felt like there was some sort of future while I was still alive that wouldn't feel so destroyed. Michigan, and I have not, I, I, I have not been to Windsor in a long time. Um, I used to go to Windsor as a high school student. But Michigan, so and I'm telling you that because I don't have right now, I don't have 21st century reactions to, to the Canadian landscape right now, alas. But Michigan to me, which I do, of course, where I do spend a lot of time feels very, it feels like it's really been dismantled. The, 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 the surface of the earth, underneath the earth with the, with fracking. So, but you, that's not really what you asked. You were asking me something a little bit different than that, I think. Um, Whatever you, you want to share is great. Thanks. Um, 
I, I, I've reached a point with, so what has changed since my book, since I gave the manuscript to Wayne State is um, COVID and um, yet another year of inaction on climate change by the United States. Um, so it all feels very heavy. It's heavy. Um, but I, again, I'm not, I'm definitely not a person who then switches from that remark or that observation to we're doomed. I just switch from that observation now to the idea that it's going to be a really long time before things start to feel like they might move in a direction where I think 20 years ago, I might, I might've felt we could move sooner. So you've referred to the fact that in the archives poems, you borrow from women's diaries from the 19th century. How do you think that they relate to your other work? What I brought to the archives, archived poems is my love for nature. Um, and so I, okay, so whenever you go into archives and you read the, the words of other people, you immediately begin impacting what you do with them just by the mere choice of what you focus on and what you spend time with, right? And so I was, uh, I was very much drawn to work that um, where the person seemed to share my interest, at least, if not, you know, love affair with nature. Um, there's a poem, I, and I want to open to it just because it's one of my favorite poems that I've written. Um, and it's the first one. It's called Margaret in Archived. And the passages that are in parentheses in that poem are, if I'm remembering correctly, and I could be a little bit foggy on the details, but I'm pretty sure they're lifted full. They were exactly her words. And I, I was just so taken with her, with her, the way she was relating to what she was walking through. And so, so how does it connect to the rest of my work? Maybe it helps me to time travel a little bit and to not get so hung up in Alice and Swan in the Huron River watershed in 2020. Gary Snyder, who has had a big influ influence on the way that I think, the poet Gary Snyder and, and environmental thinker, he, and other, other writers do this too, other environmental writers do this too, they remind us that it's very helpful to think in terms of geologic time. And I'm not gonna even begin to suggest that the 19th century is in any way getting us close to geologic time, but it, you know, it's kind of the same move same imaginative move, just expand, opening up the, the window a little bit that I'm looking out. Just to take a step back and, and yeah, get a new perspective. Mm -hmm. So New perspective, that's a great way to put it. Um, your final poem in the collection is a found poem, which is a little bit different. Can you talk a little bit about the process of creating a found poem? How is it different from the other things that you work at? They usually happen much more quickly, found poems. Um, they, they, I experience them in my writing life as kind of like a little breather. And I think kind of in the, for the same reason as writing the poems from the archives, it's the, it's the pulling back. Um, and I was reading that book Autumn by Peter Marchand. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name right. And so struck by the passage on trees and, and, I knew I had to do something with it the minute I encountered it. So usually when I'm writing a found poem, it's because I stumble on something in my reading that just vibrates and, and just insists that I pay attention to it and do something with it. 
It doesn't happen very often, and I read a lot. But when it does, it definitely is, you must pay attention. And then what's so cool about that found poem is it's kind of a double found poem because the word leaf came out of my infant daughter's mouth when she was four months old. And that was her first word. And it took me 20 years to appreciate, well, not 20, 15 years to appreciate my daughter just said leaf for her first word and consider who I am and what I do and what I care about. That's amazing. And I wasn't coaching her. I didn't sit there and just keep saying leaf, leaf, leaf. Um, but she, we had a house plant next to the chair where I would nurse her. And so leaf was like, that was a huge part of her world at that point. Right. And so that was, that one was doubly found. Um, I, and I loved the idea of closing the book with it because I like the idea of, um, I mean, I like having a voice. I feel grateful to have a voice. When I was a little girl, I don't think I ever, I didn't feel confident that one day I would have a voice in the way that I do now. I mean, in other words, a platform, actually. You asked me to talk about my book. That's such a gift and an honor and a privilege, right? But I like the idea of if closing the book with somebody else's words, and they're doubly somebody else's words. So they're my daughter's first word, and then they're, um, Peter Marchand's word, who was writing, a, who wrote a whole book about autumn and what happens in autumn in New England. It was a lovely way to close it. Very personal. Would you like to read a little bit of your work for us? Sure, of course, I'd love to. Okay. So maybe okay. So I'll start with the first poem. And the story behind this poem is kind of well, it, it's unusual. Let's put it that way. I read William Ainsworth's book, The Late Great Lakes, when it was published, which is a long decades ago. And this poem was written shortly after that, but not this poem, the, the early draft of this poem was written decades ago. And I, the poem just kept coming back up, to use a metaphor, just kept coming back up to the surface of my piles and I kept working with it and I submitted it and it didn't get published anywhere. It was shown in a Midland Michigan art exhibit that was outside so it was hung up for, for people walking around to see but it but it just it didn't feel finished to me and then um, Dan Egan wrote his book The Death and Life of the Great Lakes and I read that right when it was published which is very recently and when I finished it I knew I had the rest of the poem I, I, I then I could finish the poem so for anybody listening who's kind of just starting out as a writer or, or, or stuck or whatever, the three decades at least to finish this poem. And now it's the first one in the book. After reading The Late Great Lakes, the dead gave their last blood to birds, cardinals, red-winged blackbirds, and the downy woodpecker, red-capped, persistent, extracting food from trees in small portions in every season. Deer browse fairways, medians, and kitchen gardens. More real estate is parceled, so more roads flood fields and woods. Shores erupt and build things that have never held a seed, and city light falls over us like flames. On the beach, where waves arrive, caddis worms gather forest litter into cloaks, then creep, almost invisible, into fresh water, where fish rise from the bottom and eat what they need and when. A great lake flowing coolly over them and under them and through. Wow. So I, 
I've lost track of what happened 30 years ago and what happened recently, but the element of the death and life of the Great Lakes that was so central to this poem is the idea of invasive species, which is a whole other conversation, right? Yeah. Um, um, I always think it's, it's good to read poems that don't need to be seen on the page. And I'm afraid that first poem in the archived section kind of needs to be seen on the page. The one that I mentioned about Margaret. But here's, here's the next poem in Archived, and this is, this is called Anne, which is not her real name, but these are pretty much her words, and um, Jack is also a made-up name. It seemed important to protect the identity of these women who weren't around to speak for themselves, and it's, it's a letter, and the poem is written in the form of a letter, and uh, her words were in a, are from a letter. Dear Jack, the sky is overcast with fishback clouds, always a sure precursor of a storm, I think I have told you. We took a ride to Sylvanport and Father's Mill today. When we stopped for supper, my horse broke the strap to the wagon. I remounted so as to teach the naughty creature a lesson. Back home, I get such a shaking and rubbing down right and left. Dr. Trine says his Swedish movement cure will make me look better and behave better and feel better? There is a feeling in my bones as though you would be in town about the last of next week. What do you think of my feelings or of my bones? By the way, coming home, I led the way, and Mr. A did not drive fast enough to keep up. I would walk every 10 or 15 minutes so he might overtake us. I did not tell him so. My, my horse and I are well suited, I think. It is all in fun, Jack. I think that the last two lines are my invention, actually. As it's coming out of my mouth, I'm thinking, I think, you know, I, if I went to my notes, I could remind myself, but I, let's just say, let's just let prosperity know that if we want to. Let's read signs. So Kiwa was um, my hiking companion for 14 years in the Saugatuck Dunes. She made me feel safe. Um, she, she was a golden retriever, which is not supposed to be a scary breed, but she had an amazing, um, not a nice person detector. And I was with her more than once when her hackles went up and she bared her teeth and she got really protective. So this poem is, um, that's who Kiwa is in this poem. And her full name was Kiwana. She's named for the, she was named for the Kiwana Peninsula. Signs. Kiwa and I visit our woods. Finally, they're out from under the snow. Last year's leaves, beiged and veined and mostly whole. We're walking on last summer. The wind blows evidence of traffic and sandhill cranes over river water, scrub and downtown rooftops through empty twigs and into our ears. Trucks and cars and prehistoric bird calls ride the same wind my skin's collecting. The wind that rattles leaves and shivers Kiwa's fur. The sun's shining fine for winter, so when I press my open palm against the sunlit side of a tree trunk, it's warm. Sap's beginning to flow. I don't see it, but I know it. Faith. People who say they don't have any probably don't go outside enough. You know the social construction of all things? It can feel like a small part of the story here, where I've spied the baby tooth of a fox kit left in a boot print, picked it up, moved it to the crook of a tree, then found it again. Weeks later, when Kiwa nosed around among the grass-covered roots, our bodies had carried us to again. 
That was lovely. Thank you very much for joining us today, Allison. That was great. Appreciate it. Thanks for the excellent questions and for your lovely attention and um, for giving me a chance to think out loud, right, about this thing I do by myself so much of the time. Thanks for joining us. Look for more episodes of All Right in Sin City wherever you listen to podcasts or check out our website, allrightinsincity.com. For information and announcements of new podcasts, sign up to our email list or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.